0: Hi, I'm Emmy Award-winning TV reporter Mara esquiavo joined by Pulitzer Prize winner Wesley Lowry and senior magazine editor Keith Reed. Today on Run Tell This, how did one man manage to get away with an estimated 93 murders to become the most prolific serial killer in U.S. history? New York City mayoral candidate Maya Wiley on tackling the big urban issues of our time Plus, you've seen the viral video. Did the Dallas restaurant owner who cussed out his customers do the right thing? So I would love to start with something of no consequence. Are you guys familiar with this Reddit thing? Am I the asshole? Yes. Yes. Dallas restaurant owner. His name is Kevin Kelly. He owns a restaurant called True Kitchen and Cocktails in downtown Dallas. It's a new restaurant just opened in August. He has a DJ there. Black people are there enjoying themselves. Music is being played people start twerking and he comes out and he lets them know this is not the place for twerking. If you want to do that, get out. He goes as far as to say, I don't need your money. This isn't the place for that. Real talk, and so all this twerking and shit, take it to prime, take it to pink. Don't bring it here because we're a restaurant. And so beyond that,
1: seventy-five percent of my customers are ladies, and I am on men to show respect for themselves for how they carry themselves here. So how can I tell the men to respect themselves? And you guys are twerking on glass here. If you want to do it, get the fuck
2: out my restaurant because I did it for our people.
0: So, Wesley, I'll start with you. I, what say? Honestly, is he I, the I think
2: he is. Here, Here's what I'll say. Here's what I'll say. Right. If you, if you are hosting brunches, which is, which is what drinking with a DJ in a restaurant is, and we'll put aside the fact that in COVID, you probably shouldn't be doing that anyway, but, but setting that aside for the moment, you know, this isn't quite an old wives tale, but that there was a, a, a phrase, or a, a turn of phrase I like to think of, you know, the customer's always right, right? If you are coming to my establishments, Bringing your friends, spending your money, spending a long period of time, ordering an extra bottle of champagne you probably don't need, getting desserts. You you know, I'm not so. I I think you got to let people live. You know, I I think at a time when we're seeing restaurants and bars closed down all over the place to be able to be open and serving people and then people have the audacity to have fun in your restaurant. I don't know. I mean, this isn't a white tablecloth spot. Right, they're not you know this, and so and so I think that you know i I, I definitely don't think that the response was necessarily warranted, um, because, look, I don't think that someone's got to have my politics or cultural views to uh put their money in my pocket. <laughs> like what's the I mean,
1: like, <laughs> so, yeah, he was the asshole, but I don't think he was wrong. Okay. So you can be the asshole and not and, and still not be wrong. And, and I appreciate I, and, the and, distinction. And, yeah, and so so here's what I feel about it, right? And Wes, I, I agree with you, right? Like, come on, bro, your you, your customers are keeping the lights on up in this puppy, right? But at the same time, right? Like that's that man's business, and he has a right to have a vision with his business for his business, and he has the right to have to have rules for his business. You know, we all go to we've all patronized establishments where certain where you can't do certain things, right? If you go to certain certain spots you got to you got to walk up in have you ever been to the Harvard club you walk up in there it doesn't matter whether you have on a on on a full suit you don't have a tie on they will the maitre d will go and bring one out and say like would you like to put this on so you so you can be seated right private institutions private businesses have have he has the right to say right so that brings me to his his post where where he explains kind of what happens and he says there were three tables that had been spoken to about twerking they were approached very politely less than 10 minutes before Despite this, the last young woman decided to stand in our booth seats, place her hands against glass windows, and start twerking on the, on on the glass. <laughs> enough was enough was enough <laughs> for not for not only that lady, but for three tables of women who are the ones in our restaurant acting acting this way. As far, to, as far as the music, we create we created true for it to be a place music could be enjoyed while we sit and eat. No song is played. No song played is an excuse to stand on our furniture and do and do what they did. Right. So like. I feel like that's reasonable, right? And so and so what I've been saying to people is this. This is a problem that solves itself. He got the right to say to say what goes and what don't go go up in his spot. And no, just because he has a DJ don't mean that you can get up and turn your ass skyward <laughs> while other people around you eat eat brunch. And he has the right to make that point. But people also have the right to say <clears throat> I don't like this cat coming out here and cussing me out while I'm put while I'm paying while I'm paying him. And whether or not his restaurant survives is going to be the true testament as to who's right and who's wrong.
0: It'll survive. It'll be full of the church, folks. And he's in Texas. It'll be full of the moms and the grandmas who say, yes, that's right. We want a respectable place where we can come and eat. And we're going to put some money in that man's pocket for taking a stand. I think he's going to do. It's the best publicity that a new restaurant could ask for, especially in the middle of a pandemic.
1: Would you go to his restaurant? Would you go there after that?
0: Uh, hmm, that's a good question, because I I agree with you 100%. I don't think he was wrong. Mm-hmm. I think there's a way that you speak to your customers. You gotta have a little bit of diplomacy when you're running a business, especially when you're serving alcohol, cause you're gonna have to deal with drunk patrons all the time. Back. The easiest solution would have been to go to the DJ and say, yo man, can you put on some Kirk Franklin real quick? Just like two or three songs of Kirk Franklin. Can you just throw on a Luther Vandross? Can you put like the electric slide, like something that's gonna bring the temperature down? Because whatever they were playing that had that woman, she's not standing on the couch, putting her hands on the glass, to twerk to just any song, the DJ must have been off the chain at that point, right? I
1: want to, I want to see the twerk. I want to see the I- twerk. I want to <laughs> see no, 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 no. No, We talk about it. We are gonna talk about it. I want to see the twerk. Right. I want to see if it was like a quality twerk. If it was, if if it, it was, was it like... offensive in you know and of itself, what I mean? like cause cause because
2: of lack of yeah, sure,
1: right. You know what I mean? Like was was Where- it was he ma- was he was he mad at the fact that the twerk was happening, or was the twerk just like? A, a low budget, low quality twerk that wasn't really up to the, to, to the standards of the establishment. Was she twerking out a rhythm with the song that was being played? These are things we
0: need to know. We need to know, we need answers. Mm.
2: There's also something different between going up right. to someone and saying, hey, we can't have this, we warned you guys, can you get out of here? And him lecturing the whole restaurant they're <laughs> uh, getting captured up. You know, right. so I think there's a, there's a step that there's different. Keith said, you know, I, I agree with most of what he said. He did say it doesn't matter what song was on, but look, if as some songs, Uh, If their lyrics instruct me to put my hands on my knees and bend, run, run, you can't blame me when I follow instructions. And so, sir, you're just doing
0: what the song said.
2: Your waiters poured me (laughs) these mimosas. Your DJ is giving me instructions. And so, you know, I I, I
0: can't argue with
1: that. I can't. can't. Where where is the line? i got nothing for that.
0: Um, Keith, you wanted to talk about the Ravens. Uh, They have now postponed their game against the Steelers for the third time. Why, why is this significant?
1: First of all, you made me regret the fact that as soon as you said that, I, I remembered oh. I had this goddamn uh, uh, purple <laughs> sweater on, and I, I want to take it off now. Yeah, just um, so you do
0: realize I'm from Maryland, <clears throat> right? So I'm yeah. really to for the Ravens.
1: I, that, that's true. I love you to <laughs> death, but come on, son. Well,
2: like, and, and I'm from like, Cleveland. What, what are, what y'all do, just, the Ravens are just that's, a team y'all absolutely. stole from us. Get, get, your, get your own football team.
1: Facts. Facts.
0: Yeah, Stolen. but it's either it's either that or All supporting right. the Redskins. The Washington football. Like the Washington football. Months ago, the Redskins. <laughs> team. First, the football. Now, team. but I couldn't be the a fan team. of a team called That's the fucking a Redskins. Like, That's what kind truth. of self respecting egalitarian would I be?
1: If you don't know the story, here's, here's what's happening the, the the Steelers, the 10 and 0, my 10 and 0 Pittsburgh Steelers, the only perfect record in professional football right now, um, had a had a big rivalry game coming up with the with Baltimore Ravens. It was supposed to be played Thursday night. Thanksgiving night and it's a, and it's a game that could determine uh which one of these teams ends up in the playoffs or whether both both teams end up in the playoff seeding all kinds of implications as, as they start the playoff run. Well, Baltimore uh had a covid outbreak. Uh one person involved in a covid outbreak is a coach, is an assistant coach on the team, the strength coach who we now know did not follow covid protocols had symptoms was not wearing a mask, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and there's like just a massive, you know, outbreak on on this team to where there's from a from a 53-man roster, they're down to, you know, somewhere in the 30s in terms of the number of players that they had available. So the game, had been, been moving. All of that is legit. So all of that's fine. What's not fine, and what's been controversial about about this is that. The NFL, at the same time, they've they've moved this game now three times, from Thursday to Sunday, from Sunday to, uh, from Sunday to Tuesday, and from Tuesday now to Wednesday, and to to the point where the game's no longer even being played in prime time. It's going to be played at three o'clock on Wednesday tomorrow afternoon. Um, at the same time, the NFL has uh, has allowed several teams, including teams this weekend, to play without. Big portions of their rosters because those teams were were impacted by COVID as well. I'm not a sports conspiracy theorist. I'm not out here like, oh my God, the you know the NFL is, you know, trying to do my steal is wrong. But the NFL looks really, really bad again in terms of handling a crisis. They're just not good at managing the optics of this thing. The Denver Broncos played a game this weekend where they had no quarterback on the roster, not their first string quarterback, not their second string quarterback, not their third string quarterback. They played a game this weekend with an undrafted player that they brought up from the practice squad who started an NFL game at quarterback because because their quarterback room had an outbreak of of COVID-19. The NFL did not reschedule that game. They let the Broncos play it. Um, the San Francisco 49ers right now cannot play home games. They have to go to Arizona to play their games because in Santa Clara County, where their stadium is, they are uh, the, the county has, has issued an edict saying they don't want contact sports because of the COVID outbreak. None of those games are being rescheduled for, for, uh, for San Francisco. They're going to go ahead and, and play those games. We've had numerous teams this year play without parts of their roster, without significant role players or superstar players even on their roster because of COVID-19, this situation is, is mind-boggling to me in that they've moved this game multiple times, seemingly, and the NFL has argued that this is about player safety. But what it looks like to to any number of fans and to any number of observers is that the NFL is, has moved the game to the benefit of one team over many other teams uh, in, in the league.
2: I was someone who, from the very beginning, and I've got a lot of sports writer friends, a um, lot of my closest friends uh, work in sports. And I was someone from, from the very beginning who said, this actually does say a lot about sports and the economy and the way we operate that we're even considering having grown men go play this child's game in the middle of a historic global pandemic right like on the list of things we need to be operating football and baseball aren't there right like in terms of like what we as a society or a country or a culture need um you know, and so it's very interesting to watch all, all of that, right? And I, and I do think, and again, some of this might be my basketball bias, I think it's particularly difficult for these sports with such large rosters, right? That you can't do a bubble for the NFL. You've got too many people, too many teams, too much is going on, right? And, and so it raises this question of a lot of these problems become inevitable, once you decide you're gonna do this, right, for business reasons, for entertainment, for whatever it is, right, and I gotta be, I gotta be honest, I was skeptical of the NBA bubble at the beginning. Um, I, I was not someone who necessarily thought this is gonna work. To their credit, it largely worked without major COVID outbreaks in the bubble. The season was relatively productive, even as shortened. But I think the NFL deals with a much more complicated. These are massive rosters. And I say all this also, not even just in terms of like, should we be doing it, but also we don't know the long-term health effects of COVID. We don't know what happens 20 years down the line, or if you fall into this demographic group and then got it, then you lose five years off the back. And so there's something very serious about you know, you, these guys are employees, the NFL and the teams are their employers. And they said, all right, you're going to do this <laughs> and, and you guys are going to play and some of y'all are going to get sick. And, and, and I and I do. And so, like I said, I, I'm always really interested to see. And I and I wonder what the story, like, will we look back on some of this 10 years from now and go, yeah, it was really silly. We had this NFL season now that something terrible has happened to someone or, you know, and I, and I, I don't know the answer to that.
1: Well, that's that's been the story of the NFL for a long time, right? I mean that 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 particular ethos, the warrior mentality of the players, um, along with the with the the exploitative nature of of what professional sports is, particularly in the NFL, um, just has just carried over into into the pandemic, right? There's a certain level of risk of bodily injury, right? That that. Is accepted not just by the players, but by but by the owners and by the fans. And as a fan, have to accept right and have to be sober about the fact that like I'm not like, like I'm just as complicit in in all of this right? Because I want to see that like there's a selfish interest there. I I love the Steelers. I'm not I don't make no bones about that. I, and I and I want to see this game and I want to see what's going what's going to happen. But I'm watching people breathe on each other at close range for 60 minutes, <laughs> knowing that people are are dying, that, that close to 300,000 people in this country have perished because of this virus. And I'm still going to watch the game.
0: So I would love to talk about uh, Wes's article uh, because, you know, Wes, what makes you, in my opinion, such a great reporter is that you know, you take a look at a story. That's a big, important story. You know, you, you take a look at this man, Samuel Little, who confessed to murdering at least 93 women. Uh, he, at this point, is the most prolific serial killer in American history. And that's a big enough story by itself. But what you do so well is you say, then what? You look at the next layer. And the layer that you looked at was what does that say about the failings of law enforcement? That one man was able to kill almost 100 women over a crime spree that spanned decades. Tell me about your piece in the Washington Post.
2: So A little more than a year ago, the FBI came out and announced that they had confirmed more than 50 of these cases. They believed he was the most prolific prolific or deadliest serial killer of all time. He had given all these confessions. They made a big deal of all the confessions, the confession tapes, and then also he drew sketches of many of his victims. And so that was something that kind of went everywhere as well. And yeah, for me, it became, you know, in a lot of ways, the framing of the early pieces were what I call hero cop stories. They were the stories of the brave investigators who after all of these years have found, and I don't mean that in any way to disparage the hardworking people who have now been working on the case. But as you know, Tamara, the question for me was, all right, so this man for 40 years got away with 93 murders? That mean, that's 93 separate incidents in which he, this person could have been caught and stopped and brought to justice. That to me sounds like a massive law enforcement failure. Right, And so I, and so we started looking at that. And so what we did in the first piece is we went into these cases that have been confirmed his, right? not the cases where they don't quite know what happened, but the cases where they say, this is one of his, this is his confession, here are the details. And we went and got the case files and tried to answer this question of what if any criminal probe happened at the time? And so we went back in. So the majority and the majority of his victims were black women um, as well. Uh, more than at least two-thirds, not all of them are confirmed yet, so it's probably going to be a little higher than that. Many sex workers, drug addicts, uh, folks kind of on the margins of society who might not be missed, might not be reported missing, right, who would get less attention. And so we went back in and we got these case files, and we started asking these questions. What was the investigation like at the time? How much did you probe? Do you have any other suspects? What happened? And what we found was a number of cases where there was clearly no investigation in real time. Uh, we had we had cases where women were found beaten, stripped of their clothes, and yet it was marked as a natural death or as a drug overdose. We had one where they literally theorized that the woman had been struck by lightning, and 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 so it was just open and shut case: lightning strike and and. So think about the difference between a homicide and a lightning strike. You're not you're not out working the beat. You're not looking for suspects. You're not asking if anyone saw anyone suspicious. And so there was no way it ever would have been solved. Think about if one of those murders in the 70s had been solved that way and he'd gone, and gone to prison for murder. So That might save lives. And so that was what we were looking at. And the follow-ups continue to try to look at. If law enforcement says this is the deadliest serial killer that they know of in American history, because there's always a question with serial killers, many of them inflate their numbers or exaggerate. All that's true, and we look at that. Uh, but at this point, they're saying they've confirmed 50 to 60 of these, right? Which makes him the deadliest, even if it's not 93. The It raises this question of, well, should he and how should he have been stopped? In the piece that will be out by the time that anyone's listening, We report for the first time that the FBI was contacted about this man at least twice in the 80s. And it's unclear that they did anything in response. Uh, That we, we report about it's close to half a dozen different cases where law enforcement and prosecutors did in real time identify him as a suspect press charges and even go to trial. And we show how he was beating murder and sexual assault charges by uh, be- because of the perceived unreliability of the women who he targeted, right? And so this isn't some pops up one day, years later, oh, I killed it. This is someone who the system knew about, who they were tracking, who local police are calling the FBI, like, we think this guy's a serial killer. It's crazy, he's all over the place. And yet here we are decades later going, guess what? He's the deadliest serial killer of all time. All of it's always rooted in accountability. How could this be prevented in the future? Where were the structural and bureaucratic failures?
0: You use a term um, that I love for its succinctness and how it crystallizes a very big societal problem, which is the perfect victim, which is that if you know who to kill, you can quite literally get away with murder. Can you tell me more about that? What we
2: were looking at was how he quickly identified, and he's not the only, there are a number of serial killers and other other murderers who say this as well, right? That he was aware that people who live on the margins of society are not going to merit big protest or media coverage or political will. When I when I covered homicides across the country and just normal homicides, right, there was a, a word that the police in Chicago use uh, called a heater case, and, and that's a case where there's political pressure. It's when Dwayne Wade's cousin gets shot and Rahm Emanuel's calling the Chicago PD saying, what's going on with this, right? Those... The women who someone like Samuel Little is killing, none of them are heater cases. None of these are the college co-ed. None of these are the old grandmother. These are women who, and you got to remember the 70s and 80s and early 90s, right? Might be using drugs, might be sex workers, are the type of people who might just go off the grid for a month or three months. And so does their family even know they're missing? Do they know where they are? And so because of that, there's less societal pressure. This is also the time when police departments, uh, frankly, Uh, We're dealing with a lot of homicide, a lot of investigations. It's in the heart of the drug years. And so they would say, do we prioritize this case or not? How long, how hard do we work on this? Now, even if they do work on this, because of the people who are being targeted, there might not be a clear and obvious suspect, right? If you're a sex worker who saw six or seven guys that night, it's not necessarily like you're keeping a, a tally at the time. It's not like there were cell phones to track just because someone's DNA was on you didn't necessarily mean they were the last one with you. Or, and so it created these complications that suddenly that that for many of the women who he killed, they were women who might just show up dead somewhere. They might have overdosed. They might have. And so it did create, even as I think we apply pressure to the police for these failures, right? It it all, it speaks to how we societally see sets of people. And he was able to exploit the fact that there are some people who collectively we're not going to care about if they just go missing.
1: This reminds me um, of Cleveland. Yep, Anthony Sowell Anthony Sowell was a serial killer who could have been Samuel Little if they had not caught up to him Anthony Sowell had been convicted of was a convicted sex offender and was and was known to was known to police he had been accused of rape more than once uh in in the time that he was on his his killing spree which lasted for years and was and was never for whatever reason brought to brought to justice um he the stench from his uh from from his house was so bad that it stunk so bad that people would call the cops and they would and they would call they would call the city and the city came and sent out inspectors not to his house they sent them to there was a there was a pork store or a sausage factory or something like that up the block and they sent them to the sausage factory and made the sausage factory replace all of its plumbing <laughs> to 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 deal with the smell and the smell still never went away and people kept calling and saying hey i think it's that I, i think it's coming from over there and they never and he got away with it the same way that 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 samuel little got away with it he got away with it because he knew that the women that he was killing were people that law enforcement just wouldn't work that hard to for whatever reason just wouldn't work that he was he was killing women who were on drugs, women who were, who had been, who were sex workers, women who, you know, who he met in the bar, just women, women on the margins, primarily think black. The, I'm not think even sure, I can't been Hispanic, all of But it was large, souls. it was primarily um, black. I, I think there might've been like, it was, it was primarily, it was primarily black women. And, and there were 11 of them that they know about. Now he had, he had been in the Navy and he had served some time in prison. And there were also cases, cases of, women who went missing along the like in cities around where they knew he'd been at a particular time but they were never able to co- to connect them to him so so 11 is what he was convicted of and he's on on death row currently for that uh, but as soon as I saw Wes's story I went this is the same fucking thing again it's the same it, it's I I've, we, we've talked to we, we've talked about in various terms on this show about believing black women and protecting black women and et, and et cetera in a, in a different context. Right. But this is where it comes down to life and death and like whose life you whose life really matters and whose life do you, do you really value? Um, and clearly one of the things that's happening here is that is that law enforcement. Isn't working that hard when they when they make a value judgment about who this person was, who this woman was. It's not a coincidence that both Anthony Soule and uh, and and Little knew, admitted, said out loud that they knew who they could kill and get away with it. It's not a coincidence. They knew something about the mentality of of the police departments and various you know federal investigative authorities about how about whether or not they would work at all to connect these murders i mean think of this it, it's cleveland cleveland ain't that that damn big it's just not like there were 11 women who went missing over the years in the same neighborhood in the same neighborhood where, where the neighbors were saying that house over there smelled real bad
0: But I think it's something that we all know, but we're not using it to evil purposes because we're not murderers. But I think if you were to ask anybody in society who is paying attention, if you have to get rid of someone and you don't wanna be held accountable for it, who do you target? Do you target the 16 year old blonde girl in the suburbs whose parents have money? Or do you target the drug user sex worker who to to Wes's point, her family might not even know she's missing because, oh God, here she goes again. Have you heard from her? And I haven't heard from her. When's the last time you saw her? I saw her after Christmas. I think she was here. I mean, this is a story we all know well. So if you want to target someone who no one's going to miss, who the police aren't going to rush to find, you look for the people on the fringes of society. So to the future, Wes, in your reporting, how do we How do we deal with that when clearly law enforcement doesn't prioritize these deaths? You know, every life matters the same, but when it comes to justice, they don't all get the same measure of resources and dedication and devotion. So what do we do about that?
2: Certainly. Well, and I think this builds on, you know, I did another project two years ago called Murder with Impunity, and what we did was we looked at unsolved homicides in major American cities and looking at depending on what block you were killed on the likelihood that someone gets arrested for your murder or not and unsurprisingly that there was massive racial disparities um, in terms of who gets justice and also by the way that the police believe that in some ways drives violence that if you live in a place where there are no penalties for killing someone and also where you're more likely to be one degree of separation from someone who has been murdered without receiving justice at some point you pick up a gun right that 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 the actual system doesn't work and you've got to protect yourself and your people and and how that might lead to more violence and by the way if you, there's a finite number of people out there who would murder someone <laughs> if you if you don't arrest those people once they do it they're going to do it again right and and so I do think that this does look it raises this question about how you know do we treat and, and can we as a sh- structurally treat every murder the same in a different way. The argument is not that the blonde girl should not get a full investigation if she goes missing, right? <laughs> it's in fact the opposite. It's that all of the cases should be treated with this level of urgency and public outcry and frustration and and pressure to solve and you know, when I think one thing that's really interesting, we have this conversation very often in like the defund the police context and like how much do the police make, what are their budgets, what does this look like? There are things about our criminal justice system that just don't work very often. And the solving of murder is one of them. It's a, it's a coin flip. It's 50-50. And that's before you start adjusting for race and income and location. <laughs> And and so that's not a, that's not a particularly good rate for one of the most powerful nations in the history of the world with all these resources, all this technology, you know, there's something that's not working about the investigative part of policing.
0: Mm, That one about the lightning strike really blew my mind. You have to think of the physical evidence that should exist if someone is killed by a lightning strike that would have been absent in that particular victim. Like being hit by lightning, that's a pretty telling death. How do you come up with
2: that? You look at the paperwork and you go, all right, y'all didn't give this your all, right? Even the case we use as the lead, and this was actually one of his white victims, this woman, Mary Brosley in Florida, they, it takes them decades to ever classify it as a murder. They, They classify it as a unknown kind of suspicious death, despite the fact that she is found partially buried and and disheveled so much, so that both of her legs are through one of the holes in her underwear. Right? Not as like not both leg holes. Right? So clearly, like something. You know, you don't just and, and yet
0: you just fall into a hole. Yeah, it and just you know. So many of these
2: cases is <laughs> clear way. and obvious evidence early on that would suggest something happened here. And yet, in so many of these cases. The files just kind of got closed, they got shuffled around, and it wasn't until decades later. In some of these cases, he's confessing to crimes that the police don't even realize happened. Oh, I killed a woman here, X, Y, and Z around these years. And then they go back into the files and go, oh, we did get a missing person. You know That they didn't even identify all of these homicides in real time, which again, I do think speaks to the extent to which if you're a certain type of person, you can fall off the face of the earth. And we don't collectively know what happened to you. Um, and those people are particularly vulnerable. You know, bad people, bad things, they take advantage of the vulnerabilities. Coronavirus is the same way, right? Coronavirus isn't racist, <laughs> right? It's that we have people who are more vulnerable <laughs> in our society and coronavirus takes advantage of that. And so I think it holds up a mirror to the reality of the country as we live in it.
1: One of the scariest things about, about this was his yeah. his eerie like his memory? Yeah, and he has this. He had this photographic, very detailed, very precise memory.
2: What happened is he confessed all these to a Texas Ranger, and that he sent out the details to all the local police departments, who then went and re-interviewed him one by one. And in a lot of cases, the local investigators were mm-hmm. skeptical as hell. Yeah, sure. All right. This guy who the rangers found confessed to this murder I'd never even heard of in my backyard. Yeah. And then they get in the room and we have these Mm -hmm. secondary interviews with him. Video and audio in many cases where they're skeptical as hell. And then he says something to them. and They're like, oh, wait, what? And so, I mean, there's one case in which this Mm -hmm. woman had been found killed. And one of the only deep, this was not a murder that I think was ever written about. It wasn't public. There wasn't, you know, it was just a woman whose body had been found. And he provides a detailed confession. I killed the woman around this, this time in this place, left the body around here. Like, oh wait, we did have a body we found. They go to talk to him and he says, yeah, you know, the funniest thing about her, you know, I bought her dinner first, but the only thing she would eat is the lettuce off of the salad and coffee. And then the medical examiner's reports from real time, the only thing in her body was lettuce and brown liquid. Right, and so, and so the Sweet. investigators who are completely wow. thinking he's making it up are like, I, I mean, how do you, like, how do you bank shot that one? Like, how, how do you, like, it's, there was just, there are a lot of cases where right. it's like, right. clearly this person, you know, oh, I left in the, by the side of this thing. They're like, you know, I left her on the backside of a hotel or, oh, wait, there was a, there was a hotel right there until 82. Right. Stuff where even the city has changed, but he's describing what it was at the time in a way that you couldn't just kind of make up to this again, especially at this point, being incarcerated, 80 years old. I mean, this isn't some kid in his basement with Wikipedia and and Google, like making up a thing. This is an elderly man who's been incarcerated for nearly a decade at this point. So what do y'all want? What do y'all want? for A vacation. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's a
0: good question. I got to make my Christmas list. Yeah, rest, rest. Rest. I'm going to put that on and vodka. (laughs) Okay, Um, let's bring in Maya Wiley now. Maya is a former contributor for MSNBC and NBC, who has also worked as top counsel for New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio and as chair of the city's police oversight agency. And she's now running for New York City Mayor. Maya, thank you for being here. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you. We were talking about the, the kind of the Corona, uh, the Corona as you call it. Have you seen the, the cover of the New Yorker this week? The illustration of the woman sitting at her computer surrounded by like trash and hand weights and snacks and <laughs> <laughs> her computer her laptop is on a stack of books so that it's at eye level. Like it is so spot on. She has like a cocktail off to the side. It's just this moment in a picture.
3: Um, I don't have to look at the cover because I just have to look around. Right. That is the image I will see. Minus the cocktail, but that's a good idea. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Thank you for being here. I think you will be an excellent mayor. I live in New York City. I would love to see you become our city's next mayor. Um, So I am absolutely partisan in this regard. Why did you want to run for mayor?
3: Well, first of all, I have to say thank you. Um, That means the world to me. And uh, because I am running to be the next mayor of New York City, because I firmly believe and know that this city can and must be one where we can all live with dignity. And that's part of why this means so much, because from my own standpoint, right, just as a New Yorker, I moved here because it was a city that had everyone, that was diverse, you know, having you know, spent my early years in a black neighborhood in Washington, D.C. when my best friend disappeared, literally disappeared, because her mother, who worked in the neighborhood grocery store, uh, could not pay the rent when her landlord increased it. And I watched my community displaced. And that is not dignity.
0: Well, Maya, I I have to tell you, you know, being in New York, I'm, I'm here 20 years now, um, you definitely would have your work cut out for you if you won, because I have never seen this city so bad. I never expected in my wildest nightmares that it would be this bad. This is the kind of reality that we heard the older folks talk about from the 70s, from the bad old days of New York. And I'll tell you what I'm talking about specifically. I've seen homelessness at levels that I've never seen in any city in this country. I've seen really sad homelessness, people walking around the street, still wearing hospital clothes, still with their hospital band on their wrist, holding that plastic bag full of your belongings that the hospital gives you when you're discharged, still wearing those grippy socks that the hospital gives you. I've seen that repeatedly. Those people on park benches, wandering around the park, who've clearly just been discharged from the hospital. I've seen open drug use, And I mean, on subway cars, smoking, people smoking crack on subway cars, and I'm sharing the same air as them. There are parts of Harlem where when you walk down the street in the middle of the day, you literally have to step over bodies because there are so many people who are passed out from being high. What is your plan for addressing what's happening to this city? Because it is bad. It is bad,
3: and people's experience of it and the suffering is real. I've seen it in my, my own subway station, in my own community. So we are seeing this around the city. So let me start by saying I have been talking to the experts. I have been talking to the service providers. I have been talking to folks who've been working, particularly around street homelessness, for decades. And they have all to a person told me, that this is not a reality we have to live. And what it requires is exactly why I'm running for mayor, because it requires seeing our current structure and subsidy system and transforming it so that we're using our dollars. I'm not even talking about new dollars right now. I'm talking about existing dollars and, and using them wisely to say we have a way to put folks who may be suffering from mental illness, who may be suffering from drug addiction, who may be suffering from both, into housing that also comes with the services that helps them stay in the housing.
1: Let's talk about your your candidacy in in particular. Um, You have a a deep and varied background, but a background, um, you've, you've never run for office before. You've not been on council. How can you convince voters in New York City, that someone who is a political novice, someone who has not held elected or even run for elected office before, that you are the person to step in and take and and, and really fix those problems. You know,
3: Keith, uh, you're absolutely right. I am not a traditional candidate because I haven't run for office before. So I don't look like any other New York City mayor has ever looked. I don't think like any other New York City mayor has ever thought, and I don't behave and lead like any other New York City mayor has ever thought or led. And you know why? Because I'm coming as a transformational leader. I come in not as a traditional candidate, but I do come in as someone who knows how to manage within city government, as someone who is in the senior cabinet, as someone who showed city government exactly how you partner across agency, the reason I'm running and the reason why it actually is the whole point that I'm not like any other mayor is because that is what has gotten us into the problems that we're currently confronting. And the way we get out of them is not business as usual and is not politics as usual. It's by saying it's time for something different.
2: Obviously, the current state of New York, some of the responsibility for that falls on Mayor de Blasio, who was elected in 2013 as a great liberal hope. Right. How do you think you convince a city, some of whose voters might say, we tried this stuff and we got this, but then secondarily, you're also, you know, a black woman and New York has a history around racial politics. Um, and so h- how do you think you sell yourself in those two lanes, given the context of this moment?
3: So, you know, I'm running as Maya Wiley. <laughs> and I say that because you know what is so important i think is the fact that i have the lived experience that we are talking about now i live near one of those subway stations where i have suddenly seen in the past year year and a half homeless men and women sleeping in the subway in the entrance some clearly being drug addicted some clearly being mentally ill i'm also the one who has seen you know my own godson who lives in public housing in the Bronx who you know when he's at my thanksgiving table is thankful for the fact that he is now in his 20s that he has survived that is my lived reality And that what we need in a mayor is someone who actually understands what it is that New Yorkers are struggling with, but not from an intellectual perspective, from a lived perspective, including what's happening in our schools. I am here because I'm going to call everybody to that table. And that's what women do. That's what black women have always done. And that's what Maya Wiley will do as mayor.
0: When we're we're talking about previous mayors, um, most of the country became familiar with Giuliani after 9-11, when he became America's mayor, so to speak, Um, and he was seen as a hero and a really steady leader during a time of crisis. Now the country is seeing a very different Giuliani, but it's not a Giuliani that people who knew him in New York are surprised about I see your cat <laughs> I know you have, you have more than one right
3: I, I got I got a I, I we got we have four cats uh the fourth of which was COVID kitty uh because he he came with a little basket that was left on the street that my oh daughter my brought goodness. We, we could not say no so people
0: know they they saw you come in. they're like take that cat to my house they, she'll take there's, it then. there's a
3: I, they're paw prints that lead to
0: our food. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I'm a, I'm a cat lady at heart, but my husband has allergies, so I'm a cat lady without cats, which is a very sad life. Um, back to Giuliani. Uh, so now you know a lot of people are seeing a very different side of him, but it's not a side that surprised many New Yorkers, especially Black New Yorkers. What do you make of Giuliani's performance right now on the on the public stage, and based on on what you know of him as a New Yorker and as a Black woman?
3: Well, so um, they're unhinged and unsurprising. I mean, (laughs) both those things are true, right? Unhinged because the Rudy Giuliani of old uh, at least understood the law. So while he was mean-spirited, while he cared little for communities of color, while he was one who helped ratchet up, you know, uh, stop and frisk in the first place, Uh, that was really carried forward in, you, you know, in a Bloomberg administration. But the reality is that this is always who he's been. The there is something unhinged about him now uh, that he is in bed with the Trump administration that has tried to do everything in its in its power, essentially, to discriminate against New York City and New York State because it's run by Democrats.
1: I'm gonna I'm gonna play uh, a quick game of, a quick game of rapid fire. So I'm gonna just run down like a couple of quick things and and you tell me in as short an answer as possible, how you fix it from a policy perspective, if if you can, right. Um, Right. Gentrification and displacement. What's the policy solution?
3: Community planning that recognizes growth in each community. That means fixing our zoning process and, and ensuring that we are uh, creating affordable housing in every single community, rich and low income.
1: How do you plug that budget gap that goes to, to 2024?
3: We ask everyone to put on the table what they can contribute uh, and contribute to pulling us out of this hole. We utilize the city spend, which includes the capital construction budget, to stimulate the economy with what we spend on so that we're creating jobs and the ability to take some of our spend and put it right back in our coffers, like buying up distressed properties and utilizing it for things like solving uh, our homelessness crisis, creating more affordable housing, creating smaller classroom spaces, but the revenue then comes back into our coffers in the form of real estate dollars that can pay their taxes.
1: Where does it mean uh, raising taxes to generate new revenues? Which New York City residents would feel the impact greatest when you ask people to contribute more?
3: Yeah, we we need to ask those who can put more dollars in because of how much they have. So we are talking about the wealthy able to help the city dig out.
1: What's the top first 100 day priority for Wiley administration?
3: Well, day one is a top team expert in their areas and able to hit the ground running like no mayor in this city runs the city by herself. And this mayor will not be doing that and will be surrounded by a top flight leadership crew that knows exactly what mission is and can start getting it done, meaning it and it has to work for all of us.
0: If I could ask you a a slightly personal question, Um, your father was a very well respected civil rights leader and you lost him at a very young age. Um, how influential has that been in your decision to run for mayor and in the policy positions that you're taking? And, and do you ever seek guidance from him even now?
3: Absolutely. On on all fronts. Look, I am a product of my parents and proudly so I, um, but my parents were very special people and they were special because in addition to being, deeply committed to addressing race in America, deeply committed, as my father was, to understanding that Black women had to be the center of that, Uh, organizing Black women on welfare, and seeing them as critical leaders in something that was both about racial justice, but that solved the problem of Black poverty, (laughs) right? And trying to say it's, it's, it's race and it's the way that race is driving the economic exclusions that are producing these outcomes and seeing women as leaders. It is the fact that my mother was white, white and woke. Uh, and I say that because she, that woman raised a black woman and she did it explicitly as a white woman. And I will say that I've actually uh, been thinking about this as a, a lot, that reminds me of my father being asked, George, you keep working to feed poor people and make sure they get fed and end poverty. I mean, you can't end poverty, when, when does it stop? And he would say, when no more people are poor. And his friend's response was, well, there's always gonna be poor people. And his response was, well, then you never stop. We don't stop. And that was what my parents taught me. You don't stop and you do something else. You recognize the teachings of Luke to those have, who've been given much, much is expected. So you don't stop.
1: I got a question though, since you, since you, you ended your, your last uh, response we're talking about to, to those who have been, uh, who've been given much. I want to know what do you want for Christmas? What's oh. your, what, 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 what's your, what's your, what's on, what's on your list? Let's end on that. What's on, what's on your list? Make it a good one now.
3: Okay, do I, can I be honest? Yeah, we want you to be honest. I want some Stuart Weitzman knee-high boots. Oh,
0: yes, girl.
3: I want the ones that are suede on the front and leather on the back, you know, that's the suede and the leather. Look, you know, Keith, you asked, you went there. (laughs) I did, I did, I did.
2: No, I did, I did.
3: So I expect you to look them up.
1: They didn't sound like they were $50. I guarantee you that. Quality is not cheap. They didn't sound sound like $50.
3: (laughs) Hey, but let me just say, your question was what do you want, not what are you going to get. I will tell you, I have a lovely partner who, who is exactly that kind of generous spirit, but I am also a very practical Black woman who says, I'm running for mayor. I don't have a paycheck.
0: Right. No. <laughs> and also there's the whole press thing. Then you would be photographed and they'll be talking about, oh, she's wearing these X amount of dollar yep. boots and you know how that goes. Maya, thank you so much for your time. Um I- I'm sure the next time I speak to you you'll have like another three cats. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: No, don't say that. I can't. I can't <laughs> are they fixed? Them, are, they,
0: are they breeding?
3: Oh, no, oh, no, 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 no. There is no breeding in this house. And that's true for everyone
0: in this house. Spoken like uh, a black mama. <laughs> <laughs> Hey! Don't forget to subscribe and please leave us a five-star review. And the conversation continues on social media. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at runtellthis_. Check out new episodes every Wednesday. Runtell This is an independent production of Mara Scampo Inc.